Welcome to season six of One Day You'll Thank Me, a podcast for smart parents and therapists. I'm Dr. Tara Egan. And I'm Anna. I'm a mom, a therapist, a group practice owner, a parent coach, and an author. And I'm her daughter and a kick-ass high school student. Each week, we'll discuss a different topic that is relevant to your family and your life as a parent. And we'll also interview some amazing guest experts. Our goal is to provide an interesting and informational resource for busy parents. While also offering the perspective of a teen. So tune in every Wednesday. Crushed it. Hello, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Tara Egan and I am your host today. And Anna, I'm ashamed to say, is still not here. She does still live with me. However, her after-school job, applying to colleges, going to school every day, keep her pretty busy. So you just got me today. But the conversation is going to be great. I have a guest expert. Her name is Taylor. And she is a school psychologist who practices in the public schools in North Carolina. She is a graduate of Wofford College where she has a a bachelor's of science in psychology. She went to Winthrop University, where she graduated with a master's and a specialist degree in school psychology. She has always worked in the public schools, and she currently works for one of the larger school districts in North Carolina. And right now, she primarily works in elementary schools. She is on the board for a local school psychology organization that is designed to promote interdisciplinary collaboration, provide professional development, and conduct community outreach. She's also the co-chair of the school district where she works, Committee on Report Writing, which supports school psychologists in making psychological reports more meaningful, nuanced towards each particular student, and parent-friendly, which is super important when you're a parent out there trying to figure out what all of these test results mean. She has two kids. She's a mom. She also has a diagnosis of ADHD, and she did inform me that she has, in fact, taken her medicine this morning. So she is really hopeful that she's (laughs) not going to be wiggly during her (laughs) or inattentive during our interview today. So thank you, Taylor, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about this opportunity to collaborate and, and have this discussion today. Well, I always like to start out and ask our guest experts what led them to be in this field. You're a school psychologist. You work with kids. Like what, how'd you get here? I watched my parents go through this process with a family member and just watching how even years ago, how complicated and difficult it was for parents to navigate, to get supports for their kids. And so I decided that I wanted to be a part of the solution and help parents kind of better navigate this. So that's kind of how I got into it. Yeah. I think everybody has a little bit of a personal component to this work when they're involved in it, because it just makes it so much more meaningful and kind of pushes us through when the parts of the job that are unpleasant, like kind of rear their ugly heads. Definitely. So know that we didn't talk about this specifically, but at some point in this conversation, I want to talk about the aftermath of COVID. Yes. So Let's put a pin in it. Okay. See how it comes up. But I realized I was like, oh, that's a, it's a good time to talk about that because that I'm sure is really influencing the work you're doing now with kids as they're, I mean, you're still, we're still in like rolling back into school post COVID. Absolutely. It's November of 2022. Absolutely. Okay. We're going to get to that. So first of all, I would love to know what the like definition of a school psychologist, what do you do? What's your role in the schools? How are you different than a school counselor? Yes, that is a really great question. I've actually had family members that it took them years of me practicing before they stopped calling me a counselor. Mm -hmm. So that is a a really common thing where people confuse psychologists and counselors Mm -hmm. because there is a lot of overlap in what we do. So I tell kids and parents that basically I get to work with everyone in the school, whether it's teachers, parents, kids, to figure out how kids learn best and what they need. And so I, like counselors, we have specialized training in, in mental health support. But where school psychologists really differ is that we also are trained in 
that academic piece. And so we get to be involved in, in both areas. And so when we are working with kids, we can do evaluations to see if there's any kind of diagnosis of a difficulty that may be impacting their learning. So things like ADHD, learning disabilities, autism, and things like that. And so based on all of that, we get to kind of help guide the teams and how to best support kids in school. And so I do work really collaboratively with our counselors, and I'm really fortunate that I have two really great teams. And so we all kind of work together to complement each other and, and do what we need to do to help kids. I miss that part of being a school psychologist. As you know, I used to be a school psychologist before I left the school district to open a private practice. And I miss how you can just step down the hall and talk to another professional, whether it's the speech therapist, occupational therapist, the school counselor and administrator. There's always somebody that you get to run an idea by and then work together and benefit from their expertise to have a more comprehensive view of the of the child. And I don't think I've ever been on a team that wasn't amazing. And I know sometimes people fuss about public schools and I just kind of can be honest and say, I've just never worked with a public school team. And I've worked in Maryland, Minnesota, Virginia, here in North Carolina, New York, all over the place. I know. I'm like a worldwide. Where haven't, where hasn't (laughs) Dr. Egan worked? We need a map. But I mean, I got to see like yeah. a representation of the country and I was never like, oh, this is a team who's like trying to keep kids from getting the support they need or deny services. Absolutely. Or anything. And I think sometimes that can be a little frustrating for me here in the private practice sector to, to hear parents express that belief. Absolutely. And there's, I mean, in any profession, there's always going to be a stinker. Definitely. I just haven't come across very many in my career. I haven't either. And in the district that I work in, most of the school psychologists are itinerant and have multiple schools. Mm -hmm. So since I've been in my district, I've had the opportunity to work in a lot of different schools with a lot of different teams. And I am kind of the same way as you. I haven't ever encountered a team that wasn't super collaborative and, and really leaned on each other and in each, each person's area of expertise to, to figure out how to help kids. And that's probably one of my favorite parts about my job now. And I know when we've talked before, that's one of the things you were most excited about with expanding your practice is mm-hmm. really being able to have that opportunity to collaborate more with other professionals and complement each other. And and I, ju- I think that's so exciting for you as well. Yeah, it, it is because I've always collaborated. I mean, it's really required to, to do a good job in your field is to reach out for supervision and consultation. But having people like you open your office door and someone's right. standing in the next break area. Di- next door down the hallway. Yeah. And you're like, Hey, can I run this by you? And you know, Lacey Wallace, who's one of my new team members, she is a former school counselor. Yeah. So she's very, she just understands the school environment. She's very like, she's got the teachery vibe. Yes. And I dig it. So yeah, totally, totally hear you on that. So I know given the number of students you have in the two schools you work, you're not having a personal relationship with all the students, you know, you, your, your time is, is titrated towards the students who need you the most. How is it determined when you're going to be involved with a particular student? Yeah, that's, I wish I could be involved with, with all of the students more, but so that's one of the other ways that the counselors and I kind of have, at least in my schools, kind of split up our roles when it comes to direct mental health services is the counselors tend to serve as more of a kind of a core support, like supporting all students in the school. And then at that kind of supplemental level and and doing groups, whereas I tend to come into the equation when it's at that supplemental or more intensive intervention support is needed. And then as far as mixed supports, we do, psychologists do a lot of behind the scenes work with data analysis and looking at progress and school-wide data and individual group data and figuring out how can we help guide teacher teams to better meet the needs of their students when they're doing small groups or they're doing direct interventions. And so a lot of my involvement when it comes to the whole school is kind of behind the scenes with that data piece. And then the direct services are more at that supplemental to kind of intensive when the intensive needs come into play. And then when I'm 
working the most of the time when I'm working directly with a student, it's when we're in the evaluation process or with students who have counseling services, direct counseling services or the need for that within the school. So you said that if there's more intensive needs, can you give me an example of a time when there's like, that's a very vague term to me? Yes. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. So for example, when you have, I'll give you kind of an example of something that's come up lately. So we have a first grade teacher at one of my schools who's put some different behavioral supports in place with a student, like things like a reward chart and giving the the child breaks and things like that in the classroom. And that wasn't really working. And the student was still really struggling with managing his feelings during the day. And so then the counselor came in and added some extra supports and did some observations and tried to kind of beef up the plan a little bit more. And when we gave that a couple of weeks and that wasn't really enough either. And so that's when they pulled me in for a consultation and I was able to do some observations and make some additional recommendations and work with the student a couple of times to see if I could help better support and teach some of those emotional regulation skills and things like that. So usually it's kind of like a we all or we're each like a different level of of support in that way. That brings me to a question I have about, you know, I'm familiar in my former life working as a school psychologist about how when a child is struggling, whether they're struggling to reach their academic goals, maybe they're struggling behaviorally, we kind of layer in intervention. We start off with something that is not super intense. We just want to give like an additional kind of soft landing for that kid. So they feel really supported and they can build their skills. And then if they're not responsive, we keep turning it up a notch until the final step would be to assess the student to see if they have an educational disability and need to have placement in the special education program. Is that how your school district runs things too? It is. So in North Carolina, all of the schools, to my knowledge, are operating, We in, in schools we love, all of the acronyms, but what we call is an MTSS framework. And so that stands for multi-tiered systems of support. And that's just the framework for how we support all students. And so everybody gets that kind of tier one core support, whether it's through differentiated teaching, small groups in the classroom, kind of teacher-led supports. And then when kids start to struggle and that's not enough, like you were saying, we layer in a little bit more, we become more systematic with those academic or behavioral interventions. We kind of start to monitor their progress a little bit more intentionally. And then if that doesn't work, we move to the next level. And so if all of those steps are not effective and we're not seeing the rate of progress that we would like to see, then that's typically when the team would initiate a referral for an evaluation in order to see if the student may need some additional support through the special education programming. Okay. So if you're a parent listening and you're like, gosh, my child is kind of having a hard time right now, or maybe there's been some parent-teacher meetings, maybe an administrator has been involved, or your child does not appear to be progressing academically, it could be an appropriate question to find out more about that tiered system versus going immediately to a place where you're like, hey, like, this is crisis. Like, we need to be collecting assessment data and signing all these forms and all of that. Like, I think sometimes in my work as an outside therapist, I will reach out to the schools and say, kind of, where are we with the intervention process? And typically there's someone I can talk to who's very clear. They're like, oh, well, this is the the plan we have. This is, you know, how long we've been collecting data. This is what the data suggests. And sometimes I think in my experience, that isn't all those details aren't necessarily shared with the parents. And then for them, it can feel like, wait, is there, is there not enough being done in your school district? Do as kids move up the tiers, do you have a meeting at each point or do you just kind of naturally shift into that mode as you see need? Yeah. So that's actually something my district has been really working on in the past couple of years. And we've seen a lot of changes. And and the goal is that when a student is identified as needing those supplemental level supports, that classroom teachers are reaching out to parents to kind of explain this, you know, this is what we're seeing. This is what we want to do to help your child. This is how we're going to monitor their progress. There's letters and things that can go home. But one of the things that I've shared with our district and with all of my teams is how important it is that 
we also don't just send home a letter to a parent because it can, even for me reading those letters, it can be extremely confusing. And I would read it and think, oh my goodness, like what's going on with my child? They're really struggling. What do we need to do? And unless somebody sits down with a parent and really explains this process and how it works, it can be really confusing and and terrifying, I think, for parents. And so I really have been working with my teams to improve some of that parent communication on the at the, at the forefront in the beginning to help them better understand kind of where we're going and what we're doing. Because we do get a lot of parent requests for evaluations in my school. And that's one of the things I know you mentioned, we're going to talk more about COVID. One of the things I've noticed in my practice is we've seen a huge increase in that since COVID, because I think when kids were home, parents got to see kind of what is the everyday school day look like and how is their child struggling with doing these certain things. And then they're also seeing some of those impacts from COVID and how you know, we aren't necessarily where we are academically at third grade or at fourth grade or or wherever that we were before COVID. And we're still kind of trying to catch up. And so I think it's hard sometimes to see the big picture. And one of the things that I do a lot of with that data analysis is looking at where is our school as a whole and where are these grade levels and these classes as a whole and how do students compare to what's going on district-wide and what's going on not just in our tiny little bubble. And so I think that's something that we work really hard on to try and explain that to parents because that is very scary. And and as a mom, you don't want to watch your kids struggle and you want to know what's what's going on and what are you doing to help my kid? And Mm -hmm. those are the same kinds of questions I would be asking. And so I am kind of the same way as you and always encourage parents to, if you have questions to ask, just come and send us an email or say you want to have a meeting to talk about your concerns. And I know teachers and administrators and counselors and psychologists were always so happy to answer those questions because there's so much misinformation out there, I think, too. You see things on like parent Facebook pages and you and I are on some of those Facebook pages. Yes. Together. And it's so hard not to not to comment on on them, but you can go down a rabbit hole in reading some of these things. And sometimes parents are given really bad advice. And what we as as a school would hope is that you would just reach out to us and just want to have a conversation because we're here to talk and collaborate because parents are probably one of the most important parts of our team. We can't do our jobs without parents. Mm-hmm. So we love collaborating with them and that's kind of what we're here for. Well, I think it's also really reassuring to parents when they know that you, that when I say you, I mean the school and the school professionals within it are mindful about how you approach a child's academic career Mm -hmm. or, or behavior. And it's not something where you're just ignore, ignore, ignore. And now the child's getting suspended and you're like, Oh, Hey, let's chat. Like you're really trying to stay on top of what's happening in the school so you can be proactive and use strategies like, hey, we're seeing this group of first graders, you know, is kind of coming in and and maybe doesn't have their awareness of sounds. And so like let's create some small groups and target these kids so we can get them the support they need so it's not impacting them for the rest of the school year or into second grade. And sometimes parents don't know all those details and you know, it's all in a day's work with the school professionals, but parents don't have that context all the time. Yeah. I think too, my, both of my kids are still in daycare and we have, you know, all of the cameras I can watch what they're doing. They send us pictures of things all day. And I think too, when they, my daughter will go to kindergarten next year and that's going to be such a different transition because I'm not going to know what's going on at school all day. Whereas I have all of this information right now. And, and that's really, that's really tricky. Mm. Yeah. I remember those days. It's so I nice. The transition to kindergarten was really hard on me. Yeah. Oh, and then when my son went, I was like, "Bye." Yeah, it's always Wait. the first one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, and he. Yeah, it was hard. Anyway, I'll 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 walk you through that process. Thank you, experienced mom. All right, so let's dig into the process of assessment. So sometimes it's called psychological assessment, sometimes called psychoeducational assessment. Tell me, what does this look like? What does it mean if you're if you're a parent and you just signed consent to have your child have this formal assessment? Now, now what's going to happen? 
So we do formal evaluations. There are two ways we do formal evaluations in my district. One is through the Section 504 process, and one is through the IEP process. And so both of them involve formal testing and consent and all of that kind of stuff. The 504 evaluation is the kind of the purpose of that is to decide whether or not a child has a disability and they need accommodations in the classroom, things like extra time or breaks during testing, things like that, in order to kind of level the playing field so they can access their education and show us what they know, just like anyone else. Whereas through the evaluation through the IEP process, the kind of the goal of that is to decide whether or not a child has a disability. And as a result of that disability, they need specially designed instruction in order to access their education. And so that can look like those accommodations in addition to special teaching strategies and long, more long-term supports. So a lot of times, and especially in North Carolina, as we've kind of beefed up this intervention process, I get a lot of questions from parents about what's the difference between that intensive intervention and special education services. And and I think probably the most common one I get questions about is with reading support. And a lot of times they are, they do look very similar because by the time a student is getting those intensive interventions, it's frequent and very intense and we're using really systematic programming. And so I think when a student is eligible for special education services, they move over to that instruction and those supports are now being provided by are experts in the field, the people who are specifically trained to not only just use those programs, but also know how to adapt them to meet individual students' needs. So you just signed, it's basically like signing to buy a house. We make you sign so many, (laughs) so many papers. And what happens next is we will start doing those evaluations. And so when we're going through the IEP process, we have 90 days to finish from the day of the referral to the day we have to meet to determine if a child is eligible. So it's usually about a three-month-long process, and every child's going to be a little bit different because we only evaluate areas of concern. So if it's not a concern, we're not, we don't just do, you know, every test under the sun just because it's interesting information. We usually focus those assessments to figure out what we need to know. Like you're not going to test a kid for autism when there's no indication. Right. If autism. we're, if we're just concerned about your reading, we're not going to give an autism evaluation. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of times those evaluations involve getting information from parents about child's developmental history and background whether or not you have family history of similar challenges and things like that. We do a lot of observations and then we do formal testing. And so sometimes formal testing looks like an autism evaluation, or sometimes it's just formal educational testing where we're looking at what kind of academic skills does your child have compared to other kids their same age, regardless of if they're in North Carolina or South Carolina or private school or public school, how do they compare to, compare to their peers nationwide? Sometimes we'll do cognitive assessments that look at thinking and problem-solving skills. Sometimes we look at behavioral, emotional difficulties and, and do rating skills and things like that. So the evaluation components are going to be really different for every child and kind of based on what they need. But your team, when you're at that meeting, is going to explain to you all of the different tests that we want to do and why we want to do them so that you can feel comfortable with what you're signing. And if And I always tell parents that those meetings can be so overwhelming. And if you don't understand something or you're not comfortable with something, please reach out and ask questions because that's what we're here to do. We love when parents ask questions in meetings. And because I know even I've talked to a lot of first year teachers who haven't sat when it's their first IEP meeting and they come out of the meeting and they just look like a deer in headlights. And they're like, oh my gosh, that was so overwhelming. What just happened? And these are teachers who this is kind of their everyday thing. So, So we do the evaluations. And then once those are all complete, we schedule a meeting and we go over all the results and tell you basically all the cool things we found out about your kid and about their strengths, about the things that they may need more help with. And then we determine if they're going to be eligible for services. And if so, what what are those services going to look like? Because we can't provide any services or do any testing unless parents give consent. So parents are always kind of driving the bus throughout this whole process. So if it's determined that a child has an educational disability, and sometimes I mean, even my colleagues, they'll think of the assessment as the intervention. They're mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, 
we'll have a discussion about a child having, you know, struggles with something and they'll be like, well, they need to be tested. And so sometimes I'm like, to what end? Like, not because I'm disagreeing with, but I'm curious to see, do they understand the assessment is a very fancy, thorough process of data collection. And that's, we're taking that data and we're using that to design, could be programming, it could be behavioral supports, whatever it is, you know, with the hopes of helping that child meet the goals. And so you, you never want to have an assessment and not have the follow through with the intervention. And even though you can do some initial interventions that are kind of the lower tiered interventions to kind of say, Hey, you know, can we put some things in place that support this child? If the child's not as responsive as we'd like, that's when we're going, Hey, we need to have very specific data collection so we can move forward with really detailed interventions and they go so hand in hand. And I think sometimes professionals outside of our field don't always know that. Yeah, absolutely. And in 2020, the state of North Carolina changed how we identify students as having learning disability. And so it used to be where we would do a IQ test and we would do an academic educational evaluation and we would see, is the student's academic skills similar to their cognitive ability? And if it was different, then we said that's that's a learning disability. And now we don't even consider your cognitive potential anymore. And it's more focused on whether or not a student is, is performing well below where they should be compared to their peers and how are they responding to intervention. So, and this is the other piece of why it's it's so important for us to go through this intervention process before we start referrals, especially when we're looking at learning disabilities, is we really have to determine, is this general education support and these academic or behavioral interventions that we're putting in place in the classroom enough? And if not, we need to know how big is that gap? How long is it going to take to close that gap? And what level of support is a child going to need? Because one of the things I've noticed as our parent requests for testing have increased, at least in in my schools, and this is just a, a me observation, but I've noticed that a lot of students where we're getting these requests are ending up not qualifying for services because during the evaluation process, those interventions continue. And after we give kids, you know, that three months of time with that intensive intervention, a lot of the time they catch up and they make progress and now they're on grade level and everything is fine. And so the intervention process and the data that's collected is, is so important as a preventative measure, but then that is also, especially when we're looking at learning disabilities, one of the evaluation components we look at is that data and and how students are progressing. And, you know, I love spreadsheets and I love data. So one of my favorite parts of those evaluations is when I get to plug in all the data and, and do a kind of a gap analysis and see like, where are we? How far are we away from where we need to be? And, and how much time is this going to take? And, and I think that is very nerdy of me, but it's also so much fun for me to see. And I find too that kids love to see that too, is yeah. they love to see their progress and be involved in that because they're working so hard. And I can't imagine how hard it would be to, you know, as adults, if we're working really hard and nobody's telling us, you know, where are we going from here? Have you made any progress? Is it, you know, are you getting anywhere? It would be incredibly frustrating. So I like to involve kids in that evaluation process too, when we're looking at that data just because it's it's so fun to see and get their insight on, wow, you made a lot of progress the past couple of weeks. What have you been doing differently? And you know what's changed? And kids are so smart, even in kindergarten, getting their their feedback and input on things is, is so fascinating during this intervention process and during the evaluation process. And sometimes kids can get an inadvertent message that like, oh, I'm not I'm not smart because they can recognize like their reading skills might be behind the other kids that are sitting at their little table in their, you know, second grade class. And when you can show them, like, look at the line going up, Yes, <laughs> you know, like you used to know this many words and now you know this many, or you could, you used to be able to read this book and now you can read this harder book and they can feel really proud and that can help their academic self-esteem. And then they can, you know, just go into that class with more competence, maybe be more motivated to pay attention and do their best work, which then of course further mm-hmm. increases their likelihood of having a positive response. Because I also get to figure out how much progress do typical students make when they're not getting intervention. And so kids love to see that too. When I say, 
wow, look at this line here of what most of the kids are doing. And then look at you, look how much faster you're growing. And they, they just absolutely love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really cool process. I mean, school psychs, in my experience, really love their job. They love the variability where you have times you're working hand in hand with teachers or your team, or you're working, you got a kid in your office that you're, whether you're testing them or providing some sort of, you know, mental health support or you're writing reports or you're presenting at your, your districts, you know, school psychology meeting or whatever. Like we have a lot of hats we wear. I remember in graduate school, it was like one of my first classes, you know, how they, they have you take like school psychology. It's like, the role and function. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's like, like school psych 101. It's like kind of like that. And I remember my professor was this ancient guy and he had the most meticulous comb over. I mean, it went <laughs> from one year to the other year. And he, I remember he was like, let's talk about what your job entails. And he wrote advocacy across the board. And he was like, you were always there to advocate, you know, and then as he expanded his lecture, he talked about the ways that we do that, Mm -hmm. you know, consultation and assessment and counseling and all of that. And I just really remember him having this animation to him and really talking about that role. And I think that everybody in school kind of has that, that role, whether it's defined so clearly or not, but if you're a parent and your kids are struggling and you emailed the teacher and she didn't respond in the way that you would anticipate. And you're feeling really discouraged about it. Like, I understand that happens. I have no, no invalidating Absolutely. of those feelings, but behind the scenes, I, you know, I want people, I want parents to hear like how passionate school professionals are about supporting students. Like it's what they live and breathe. And there's a lot of different ways we can support them. And so there's these individuals in the building that all have these different talents and, so it's, I hope everybody has, finds it helpful to to know more about the school psychologist. I want to switch gears a tiny bit and just talk about when it comes to a psychological or formal assessment, what's information you're, you're not going to be able to get? So I'm going to give an example. Schools are not going to diagnose schizophrenia. Correct. That is way beyond my, my wheelhouse, for right. sure. So that child may get a diagnosis of something like that from an outside professional, maybe a psychiatrist, maybe a neurologist, maybe mental health clinicians. And then you might take that information and design supports for that child to be responsive to that diagnosis. But so you might take that information that you glean from these outside professionals. You might understand that this child has a diagnosis and then modify the environment or support that child emotionally through an IEP, but you're not going to diagnose schizophrenia with a psychological assessment. Correct. So when we're talking about eligibility for special education services, there's 14 different categories that we get to pick from to, to, it's just a funding category that each of them has specific criteria that a student has to meet in order to be eligible for services. And I think it's just the state and the federal Department of Education's way of really making sure that the students that are getting these types of supports really need them and that they are consistent with what we're providing in school because schools are not medical providers. We're not clinical practices. So there is a lot of overlap, but we're not a hospital. We're not a a doctor's office. So what we do when we get a medical diagnosis is we have to determine, is this something that is relevant to a child's learning? So something like schizophrenia, for example, we would take that and say, okay, how does this impact a child's learning? And so one of the categories that we would be considering for a child with a diagnosis of schizophrenia would be called emotional disability. So we take the criteria that the state has, and then we take those characteristics of schizophrenia that impact learning and figure out how to design an educational program for that student. Whereas a more medical model is going to be looking at more of home and community-based supports and how to support the medical diagnosis in that way. And I know you and I collaborate a lot of times when you are working with families or students that are also working with us in the school, we're able to kind of coordinate the types of services where we're really working on what does this child need to help with their learning? And then you guys are working on things that may be impacting their relationships and things at home or just more community functioning and things like that. And so that's how the, the medical and the educational kind of models can 
go together and, and collaborate because in isolation, it is very difficult to help kids with a medical diagnosis, whether it's schizophrenia or autism or intellectual mm-hmm. disabilities, even ADHD, without that collaboration, because our role in school can be very limited. We see kids, you know, from eight to three o'clock. And beyond that, we don't have a whole lot of control over what happens Mm -hmm. at home. And so that's where, you know, really parents and teachers and school psychologists and counselors and community providers and therapists really kind of coming together to work to help kids is kind of helps us get the best outcome. On occasion can be times when a parent will be working with me and they're maybe getting parenting support. They're, you know, working on adjusting to a personal circumstance like separation or divorce. They might be aware that their child is generally functioning at an appropriate level at school. And so they get kind of shy about telling the school like, oh, we're working with this outside therapist or or sometimes even like my child is taking medicine and they worry that the school is going to think, that their kid is bad or that that there's like all this drama going on or, or, you know, behind the scenes and they get like self-conscious. And I'm like, oh gosh, the school loves to know the details. Like they're there to support you and then they're not going to be in your house at 530 like I might do, or there may not be on the phone with the psychiatrist the same way I would be, but they want to know the whole picture because they want to put that in context. And so I encourage them to to develop a strong relationship with the school where they can be transparent with the circumstances so that you guys can take that in in context with what behavioral needs are being exhibited or social needs or obviously academic needs. And so sometimes parents from my end need a little bit of a reassurance of like, no, no, this is your audience. This isn't. Absolutely. School psychologists have the same rules with confidentiality as any other mental health provider outside of the school. And so when parents share personal information with us as, hey, I just needed you to know this to help so you're aware and in case there is a need for something at school, we aren't going to, we don't blast that on the, on the loudspeaker to everyone. The only people we would share that information with is anybody who has a direct educational need to know that information. And so I get a lot of details and information about things like family, things that are going on with families or trauma histories and things like that when I'm working with families. And it's part of my job is figuring out from this information, what are the most important components of this that I need to share with, whether it's the classroom teacher or the school counselor or, you know, the people that are going to be directly working with that student. And so I love that you're telling parents that because that is so important for us to know, because a lot of the time there are kids that will kind of hold, like you said, they'll hold it together at school and they don't show that they're really struggling at school. And then as soon as they get home, they fall apart because they've been kind of holding in all of this, all of their feelings while they're in the, in the school day, it's using all their energy to kind of keep it together from eight to three o'clock. And then they get home in their safe place. And then they, it's just really, really difficult. And so when we collaborate with parents and they're saying that there's things that we can put in place in school to kind of help get to the root of what's going on and help the child kind of release some of that while they're in the school building so that it can help support things at home. But if we don't know what's going on, it's really hard to do that. Mm-hmm. And I've heard too from friends that are in the medical practice about how they really encourage parents to communicate with schools, especially with medication, because the school environment is so different from home. And some of my doctor friends have said, you know, it's so hard for us to know what to do with these medications when the only input we're getting is from what is the kid doing at home after they've been at school all day and they're tired and the medicine's starting to wear off. We need to know how is it affecting their learning and are, are they able to focus more? Are they still, you know, is this helpful at school? And so when you let teachers know, hey, you know, we just started this new medication. Can you give us some information about what you're seeing? Doctors love that. Mm-hmm. I think they find that so helpful because especially with ADHD medication, I know my own experience, it can take years to figure out exactly what's going to work for you. And then I know with kids, a lot of times, as soon as you figure it out, they, you know, they grow six inches and mm-hmm. and then you have to figure they it out all again. Yeah. <laughs> Next thing you know, you know, they're wearing your clothes. Yeah. and And so- 
just really kind of having that constant feedback loop between all of the different providers is really helpful just in general, I think. I think another thing that's helpful when parents collaborate with with the school professionals is when their kid comes home and they say something like, no one likes me. I have no friends. Yes. And so a parent will come to me and be like, he's saying he has no friends. And I'm like, gosh, that sounds really stressful for them. That sounds really upsetting. Maybe they feel rejected or maybe they feel disconnected. Let's talk to the teacher and see, you know, is this child talking to other kids at lunch? Do they have favorite friends that they gravitate towards? Are they laughing and can they play appropriately or are they really walking around the playground alone, you know, and not always, but a lot of times the teacher's like, oh my gosh, she's got a little friend named Thomas and they're two peas in the pod and, and they go out into the playground every day and play this pretend game. And, you know, and then he also likes little Sarah and like what the kid perceives does not always line up with what the teacher is seeing. And it doesn't mean that that child is telling something untruthful, but we have to make sure that Everybody has an understanding that the teacher has an understanding that this is how the child is conveying things at Mm -hmm. home and for the child to also understand or the parent to say, okay, let me give you some reassurance. This is a kid who's connecting. He works well in a group or he sometimes has bumps in the road when it comes to playing games. And if his team loses, feeling really disappointed and stomping off, but he does have friends. And so making sure that everybody's on the same page, because a lot of assumptions can be made when we are just relying on our child to report things or when medical professionals are relying on the parents input from a restricted portion of the day. And, you know, we have to factor in things like, are they a kid who eats breakfast? Because we got a grouchy kid. Let's, you know, some low hanging fruit. Pardon my pun is, Let's eat. Yes. <laughs> Food solves all problems. It really does. It really does. And we can go on and on. I know. But all those things in my work as a therapist, like everything I do is informed by being a school psychologist. Like it just, it makes me non-traditional. You can never take that hat off. It's impossible. Right. And there's some days that are more school psych days than other days. You know, if I'm going to do an observation if I'm going to be coordinating with school professionals, if I'm having the parents collect some data on behavioral stuff at home, because sometimes we talk about like frequency, duration, and intensity, and mm-hmm. I have them keep some, some simple data on like what this behavioral outburst looks like during dinner, what's the timing, how much is it interfering with your family life? Like you might be super annoyed that your kid leaves their wet towels on the floor, but it's not a big interference with your family life versus your kid having a screaming meltdown in the airport and they didn't let you on the plane. Yes. Very disruptive to family life. So all of that stuff, like, like I said, is informed by me being a school psychologist. And, you know, on our team, we just added Madison Gabriel. And she has a play therapy perspective. So exciting. It's like a foreign language. Yes. I am learning so much because she and I will have discussions about certain cases and the way she thinks about it and conceptualizes intervention. Holy moly, is it different than the way I do it. And the thing is, unfortunately, she's such a good like teacher of it where I don't, I'm not like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, I'm like, oh, that does make sense. I mean, I don't do that. It's such a good compliment to yeah. your school, former school psychologist, very structured, mm-hmm. you know, database, database brain. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. Yeah. And so now we can do it where if somebody comes in and they do an intake and no matter who they end up in front of, we can determine like what type of intervention is going to be a best fit for not only the kid, but the parent who's working and supporting them at home. Definitely. So it's just this whole other rounded out portion of my practice. And I'm learning so much. I still am like, hmm, I don't even understand yeah. all of the nuances of this, but every day I learn more. And then she, you know, gets to benefit from the work that I do. And then Lacey, who's the former school counselor, you know, she de- definitely is like kind of, it's more similar to school psych than a play therapist. Right. So she's kind of more in the middle. Yeah. It's amazing. It's like a, it's like a full spectrum of supports. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. I really enjoy being able to collaborate with you and your team and just really being able to, and, and whether it's with you guys or other therapists and just figuring out how do we 
wrap our arms around these kids and, and really support every part of their life because kids are involved in so many different things. They're not just a student or a daughter or a son or a soccer player. They're, they're all of these things. And I always tell parents, school is the only time we expect kids to be good at everything. I was terrible at math, which is kind of ironic because I do a lot of math now, but I was terrible at math growing up until I got to grad school and, and it was really practical, statistical analysis and that kind of math. But schools, so I would, you know, avoid that kind of thing like the plague because I was not good at it. But in school, you have to do everything, whether you're good at it or not. And I know like public speaking makes me very nervous. So I try and avoid things that make really. Yes. I don't. (gasps) I think so surprising. You're sitting here all relaxed. I get, well, I think this is a little bit different. Like if I am, you know, standing in front of a a group of a hundred psychologists and having to talk to them about something, I get, I get so nervous. I just am too self-centered. I think like I presented to the, the Charlotte Mecklen bar yesterday And I'm just like so interested in what I have to say in my agenda of imparting this information to this group of people that I get to have access to all of these people that I'm just focused on like, what do they need to know? I love planning professional development or presentations that I'm doing for parents. Then when I get up to do it, I always like feel like I'm going to throw up while I'm doing it. And then afterwards it feels so good. But, you know, just some of those things that, you know, when you are an adult, you get to focus your career, your job that you're doing on the things you enjoy and the things you like. And I think probably the reason why I don't avoid public speaking is because I do love a challenge and and I know it's challenging for me. But if my job involved having to sit at my desk all day and stare at documents and reading things all day and not getting to talk to people, I would hate that. I would be so bad at it. So that's, I picked a job that doesn't involve a whole lot of sitting and I get to run around the school and do all kinds of different things. And so, but kids have to be good at everything. They have to be good at math and reading and social studies and science. And that's so hard. And so I love getting to collaborate with kids and parents and therapists and doctors and everybody working together to help this kid understand, you know, these are the things I'm good at. These are the things that are a little bit hard for me right now, but it's going to be okay. And so North Carolina, you don't necessarily have to invite students to IEP meetings until they're 16. But me and my team really like to involve kids in that process, even kindergartners, because I think it's so important for kids to understand, yes, I have a disability, but that, that does not define me. I am not Taylor, ADHD Taylor. I'm Taylor. And these are the things that are hard for me, but also this gives me a lot of superpowers. And how can I use those strengths to help improve some of the things that are harder for me? And because ultimately, and especially when kids get to middle and high school, they have a lot of different teachers. And if students can't advocate for themselves and they don't understand what they need, then it's very difficult for adults to give it to them because you can't always rely on parents to have to fight those battles for kids. And, and at some point, your kid is going to have to fight that battle for themselves. And so I think that's where I see a lot of my role in elementary school is setting kids up to be ready to go to middle school and high school and do that and helping them understand what's going on with their brains and why do they learn this way. And, and, and I think that that's another part of my job that I just really enjoy getting to do. And I can't do that unless we all kind of collaborate together. Hmm. What do you think? Is there any point that you think is important for parents to know that we didn't get a chance to talk about today so far? We talked about a lot. If you're a parent listening, thank you for hanging in. Hmm. I think we covered so much. I think just reach out, ask questions, be wary of the advice you get on Facebook. We're here to help. We're here to collaborate. And and I think that's probably the message that I hope parents got out of, of listening if, if they did hang in there. And well, I think too, is, is having a belief or having a trust that the people who are with your kid all day at school, they do care about your kid. They want them to succeed. It's not about denying your kid something or not supporting them or recognizing like how important they are as an individual. Yeah. There's a lot of kids that school professionals are taking care of at any individual time. And they're trying to factor in the best way to use their resources in the school district. But if you go into the relationship with the school, making assumptions, 
that these people are not really motivated to connect with your kid and support them. And you're already coming in with just this sense of stress or despair, then it is going to be a much harder process versus saying to yourself and to each other, like, I appreciate you. We're, we're all working together for this child. We're all important adults in this child's life and let's work together. If, if there's a question, ask it. I mean, you're not being confrontational to get clarity on something. But I ask parents, like, just have a trusting heart and start there and start the discussion from that place. And then from there, it's probably just going to go up. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for being here today. I know I took up a very early morning hour with two little tiny humans in my house. I am up very early. So this was great. I'm just really excited that we were able to do this and I hope this helps parents listening and yeah, I'm just excited to be here. Well, good. Well, we will make sure that you are aware of when this episode's coming out. I don't think it's going to be very long. I would love to get it out before Christmas because then as people are rolling back into the next semester after the holiday break, and that is often a time where teachers and parents come together to kind of reflect on how the year's going, a parent can hopefully listen to this and feel even more equipped to have that conversation. Absolutely. All right, Taylor. Thank you so much for being here. And to our listeners out there, remember that in general, we have new episodes on every Wednesday. As the holidays approach, we have a couple weeks in here that we do encore episodes, which means we take an episode that, based on our data, once again, let's talk about how awesome data is, Mm -hmm. we feel that our listeners have really enjoyed, and then we go ahead and replay it. And it gives me and Anna and my team a time to take a breath and get everything done that we need to get done to make sure that we continue to offer really high quality content. I know longtime listeners know that I have been expanding my group practice. We moved into new office space. And so that has been a very time consuming process. And with our Anna being so busy in this college application process, season six has looked a little bit different because of that. So I think as we're rolling through the holidays, it's going to look a little bit more traditional. In fact, later on today, when Anna gets home from school, she's doing two episodes back to back with me. So she's going to finally make an appearance. Welcome back. I know. I know. I was hoping that you'd be able to connect at a time that she was with us. All right. Well, stay tuned, everyone. Thank you for being here. 